Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of the Psyched Podcast. I'm your host, Michael, and I'm here with my friend, Miles. How you doing, man? I'm good. I'm good. I could have done better if I, uh, you know, I, I just woke up for this and uh, I was super excited. So I got out of my bed, uh, but I, I made a mistake. I went on the wrong side of the bed. And, you know, because I typically don't do that, I totally hit my small toe against the edge. So that's, that hurt for quite a bit. And uh, I'm still feeling it. But other than that, I'm, 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 really, um, I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, particularly because I will be talking a lot today, which uh, I always like to do. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah. So, how are you? I'm good. I'm doing fine, you know. I uh, woke up well rested, you know, and I'm ready to go. All right, awesome. So, so let me let me ask you uh, a quick question, uh, since we're talking about uh, rewards today, and uh, the title is uh, why we like sweets. Are you a person that likes sweets or are you more into the savory, salty snacks? What, what, where's your favorite? Oof, I think that's a good question. Uh, I mean, I think it depends. Uh, usually I'm more of a savory kind of guy, you know, but every now and then I do get a, a sweet tooth, you know. How about you? Right. Yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm definitely sweets. Uh, definitely. I um, Cookies... Uh, chocolate as well, though a little bit less than... than than it used to, but particularly like dry cookies or something like that. This is, this is the greatest thing for me. Typically, the ones when you order a coffee in a fancy restaurant or in a fancy cafe, you you get you get a cookie with your with your coffee, right? Those kind of cookies, those are really really great. I, I can eat like forever. <laughs> and and I mean honestly, I I am the I'm the worst. You know, I am. I, I once I, I start I, I cannot stop so I, I mean we will be talking about addiction a little bit later but I am a bad example so when I you know when for example when I buy a box of cookies that box of cookies will be gone at the end of the day when I buy it it goes the same day and it goes completely the same day <laughs> how about yeah, you I mean can, can you stop when you start no not at all you know what I'm saying like once once that package of cookies is open or once that, you know, bag of chips is open, you know what I'm saying? It's gone, you know, so that day, you know, like it's, it's gone. Yeah. Uh, uh, I don't know. Uh, I'm guessing it has to do with uh, <laughs> dopamine, right? Because dopamine is kind of related to reward, right? Uh, yes, yes. So, you know, now you want to get serious, I, 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 I see. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, no, let's, let's, let's talk about the science behind it. Uh, you mentioned dopamine. Dopamine is... Uh, what people typically assume is related to uh, rewards. Uh, there are a lot of channels on YouTube, uh, fitness channels, but also other channels that every time they talk about something positive happening, they talk about uh, reward in your brain and the, 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 the reward chemicals in your brain getting released and everything. Um, and that's true. I mean, it's, it's true that dopamine is related to reward. That's absolutely correct. However, it's just a very, very small part of the entire story, and uh, there's a lot more to unpack there, and, uh, and that's kind of what uh, I want to do today. Uh, I mean, by itself, dopamine is already like incredibly complex. It's dopamine right. is also related, for example, to movement. Uh, if you have, uh, if you know a person who has uh, Parkinson's disease, Parkinson's disease is a disease that primarily affects dopamine. Um, uh, the, the dopamine in, in, in the in the in the brain so you know it's 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 more than just uh, uh, a a chemical in the brain that makes you happy it's it's way more than that it's it's pretty complex and even that is just a tiny bit of the story right exactly uh, if i'm not mistaken i think dopamine when it comes to parkinson's uh is a disruption in the substantia nigra thing right right just just throw your knowledge there man yeah yeah i mean you know this is kind of your episode right because this is your phd topic kind of right so it I is i want to show off my skills <laughs> it is yeah uh, yeah so the substantial nigra just to clarify this is, is, a, is a part in the brain it's very dopamine heavy uh, but it is more related to movement uh, it is also somehow related to reward but it's also related to movement um it's a tiny area in the brain somewhere in the middle of the brain but uh, we won't be talking too much about that but yeah yeah you're right so this is what this was my phd topic 
So I studied this for four and a half years, uh, wrote my dissertation about it. Uh, I have published 10 or so papers on this topic, maybe uh, even more. Um, so yeah, I, I spent a great deal of my, my life uh, studying this. Yeah, so I mean, just to kind of uh, make it clear for the, for the listeners and viewers, uh, I mean, I guess this episode is going to be you uh, talking about this topic, the topic that you're an expert in, you know, and I'll kind of sit back and listen and learn and uh, hopefully ask some insightful questions along the way. And uh, uh, yeah, so, so why don't you start what we're going to discuss today? Yeah, so, so let's, let's talk a bit about uh, how, how rewards are processed in the brain. Um, so one thing, what would be a good start to know is that the, the brain actually is kind of like a predictive system. So when we perform an action, then we make, the brain makes a prediction of what the outcome could be. And that is something which we call predictive coding. Um, and it, this is known for quite a while, and there are some examples that I will give in a minute, but that is a very basic underlying story that you will see through the um, processing of rewards and also of punishments and uh, a lot of other things in, in, in the brain. So, for example, uh, the, the predictive coding, this, this theory about predictive coding, it came about by another theory, which is called efference copying. So what's efference copying? Efferent means to send out a signal. So when you send out a signal, a copy is made. For example, when you are making a movement with your hand, let's say your left hand, then the motor cortex, so the area in the brain that is important for creating the movement, sends a signal towards the muscle to actually move that hand. However, a copy of that signal is made and is also sent to the somatosensory cortex. The somatosensory cortex is the cortex that, uh, or the, the part of the brain that is important for feeling. And, and so when you, you know, when you with your left hand and move towards uh, something wood and you would feel it and you would feel it wood. So why is that important? That is important because the body can predict what a potential outcome will be. So that sounds very similar to what's going on in the rearward system. That's also the reason why you cannot tickle yourself. So if you, with your left hand, make the motor command to tickle your right hand, you won't be, I mean, you can tickle your right hand, but you won't feel it as tickling. Why not? Because um, that efference copy, so that copy of the motor command is also sent to the sensory cortex of the right hand. And then the right hand will know, okay, so I will be tickled. So I don't have to feel that tickling sensation. So basically it suppresses that. So uh, that, that, that's what an efference copy is. And basically it shows that the brain already makes a prediction of the outcome, in this case, about what the, the movement will be. Yeah, and maybe this is a bit of a sidetrack, uh, but we spoke a little bit about efference copying before we, we recorded this podcast. You told me something really interesting about the role of efference copying in uh, reading. Can you say that again for listeners? Right. Yes, that's, that's, that's right. So the example of what I gave with tickling is, 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 is one example, but another example is when we're, when we're speaking, uh, speaking is of course also a motor command in some sense, right? Of course you have to generate the words and then you have to output the words, which means you have to move your mouth, you have to move your tongue. So that's, that's, that's a motor command. Um, and there is an efference copy made to, again, the sensory area, in this case, the auditory sensory area, which is the area in the brain that is important for listening or hearing. Um, so when you speak, that signal that is created to create speech is also sent to the auditory cortex um, so that the auditory or cortex can predict what it will be hearing. That's why that's the reason why you don't uh, hear yourself very well. So, for example, when you record yourself for the first time, you will note that your voice is completely different from what you expected. And that's because you hear yourself different than other people hear you. And the reason for that is that your, um, the, the hearing of your own voice is suppressed by the auditory cortex because you already have a copy of what you were actually going to say um, sent there by the motor command of the actual speech. So that means that um, 
for example, when you are reading, um, you can you can read silently, which is basically creating a motor command that is so small that it doesn't actually create a sound. But still, that 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 motor command is there, and it's sent to the auditory cortex. So basically, you can r read out loud in silent to yourself. That's kind of what. Uh, uh, speaking to yourself is and you will know that some people are not as good as this as others so some people when they read silently they will still move their lips a little bit which is just that motor command that is then also sent to the auditory uh, cortex right yeah i mean i was kind of almost mind blown when i heard it for the first time but it makes perfect sense you know uh yeah uh but you spoke a bit about predictive coding before uh and I'm wondering just so, okay, so how, what's going on in the brain? Can we measure it with uh, some technique like EEG or something? Yeah, right. So let me first come back to a little bit the, the reward story. So um, uh, when, so these were examples about more movement related stuff, uh, movement of your hand or movement of your mouth, uh, creating speech. Um, but when we are, making an action that can lead either to a reward or a punishment, then we also have this predictive signal of what the future potential outcome will be. So for example, if you buy a candy bar, you will have the expectation that that candy bar will taste nice, right? Because that's uh, kind of what you, uh, that, that's why you would buy a candy bar because you want it to taste nice. Right. So you, you kind of have an expectation that uh, the candy bar uh, will taste nice. And that, that, that prediction is made in the brain. And then later on, when you actually get, when you eat the um, candy bar, you will compare the actual outcome. So how it actually tasted to what your prediction of that was. Um, and that, that's kind of what predictive coding is in relation to uh, rewards and punishments. And so typically what we do is we predict re rewards. So we, we tend, like, as humans, we tend to um, predict the positive things about it. Um, we, we tend to predict positive outcomes. That's not necessarily always true. Uh, for example, when you are studying for a test, you will know or you will probably predict that the studying for the test itself, like the studying itself will be a little bit boring or a little bit, um, you know, w will not be as rewarding. That will be more kind of a punishment. The reward comes then later when you actually do the test and you have a nice score. But uh, so, so a prediction doesn't need to always be about a positive thing, but it tends to be more often than not. So for example, when you buy the candy bar, uh, you will predict that that will give you a positive outcome because why else would you do that outcome? We always try to seek... Uh, the positive things, yeah. So and and yeah, you asked about uh, can can we measure this? Uh, and and actually we can. So uh, there is a, a technique in neuroscience called electroencephalography, which uh, in short is EEG, and I will I will refer to it as EEG, um, which measures uh, signals in in the brain, uh, and and maybe some of the uh, Listeners have seen that before, where you have those wavy patterns. You know, some some uh, sometimes you can see it on TV um, or in some other series. But uh, yeah, so those wavy things they are actually brain signals. What they are is they are the uh, differences in potentials from a group of neurons. And when I'm talking, when I'm saying a group of neurons, a group of brain cells, I'm talking about hundreds of thousands of neurons, right? So if there are hundreds of thousands of neurons active at the same time, this will create this, this waveform. And that EEG signal, so that those waveforms, you can relate to a certain point in time. So for example, we will only look at those brain waves when we are actually getting a reward. So uh, let's have people do a task where they have to press a button when they see a circle and they have to press another button when they see a square and when they press a a circle, they get a reward. Um, for example, they win 50 points and they have to have a high score at the end. When they get the 50 points, that's when we actually can measure the EEG. So, when, so we basically time lock our EEG recording to that, that reward. 
And then we can look at the brainwaves that are particularly necessary for, um, for that processing of the reward. Uh, and that's, that's what we call event-related potentials. So for event from, uh, there is an event, there's something going on. In this case, you get a reward or, or a punishment. Uh, and it's event-related, so it's related to that event. And it's a potential. And a potential is just a word for uh, a difference in, in, in signal. Uh, which I would uh, or I mentioned as a brainwave. So when you're looking um, at when people get a reward, uh, there are four signals that we can identify reliably um, when people do those tasks. And you will see this in every participant. You can run hundreds of studies and hundreds of studies will find it. So this is a very reliable signal. This is a signal we find in everybody. This is, you know, there are a lot of things about the brain we don't know, but this is stuff we do know. Yeah, that's really cool, I think. You know, the fact that you have this consistency across time, but also between people that we all, uh, regardless of who we are and when we do this, when we see a reward, for example, we will see this event-related potential or ERP, as you call it. It's pretty interesting stuff. Right. So uh, I guess what I can do is I can talk a little bit more in detail about those four signals. Uh, so why are these four signals interesting? Because they actually relate to different steps in this predictive coding. Uh, and I will, I will give some examples uh, about that. And then, then, then you will see what the brain is actually doing when you're getting a reward. However, before we, we, we go there, of course, um, there are there's some stuff going on before that, right? So it's uh, when you, you get a reward, you first have to process the sensory information. Sensory information is just the things you see, hear, feel, and so on. So when you're eating a candy bar, you first have to, of course, taste the candy bar for it before you can know whether that taste is any good or bad. The same when we, in, uh, in more neuroscientific research settings, would let people do a task and they get points for a certain outcome they first have to see the points before they actually can know whether that's a reward. So what, what happens first in that example is that, uh, let's say people press the circle button and they get 50 points. The number 50 that's on the screen is first going to your eyes and that signal from the eyes is going to the visual cortex where the number 50 is processed. So first number five is created, the number zero is, is, is created. And then you know that you saw a five and a zero and a five and a zero together is 50. And you know that 50 is a numerical value. Uh, and, and that's basically what happens in the first few 100, 100 to 150 milliseconds. That's just a sensory process and just to see what, so what you actually see. And then the signal is, is going to the, the frontal cortex where the actual reward and punishment processing is going on. So I'm, I'm not saying that this is not important for reward and punishment processing, but it's not directly related to uh, the, this process. And this is just something that needs to happen. Right, yeah. So you're basically saying that first there's a sensory processing of, of the reward. Like we see uh, when we're doing a neuroscience task, we first see on the screen that we, we, have, a, we have some points coming. There's a reward. And that is a prerequisite for us to be able to experience that this is a reward. And exactly. that's a separate uh, process in the brain, right? Exactly, yeah. And, and, and of course, when you would eat a candy bar, it's the same thing, but then uh, you're sen you have first have to sense what your so the, the the taste is going onto your, your your tongue and then the brain processes this is okay this is a sweet taste uh and maybe also some other taste as well and then after you identify the taste that's when you can judge whether this is a reward or a punishment right, right? so okay but yeah, so these, these are just things that happen beforehand. And these will happen all the time in the brain. And, you know, when you look around, visual information is processed all the time. And I'm pretty sure we will be talking about this in a future podcast as well. But um, let, let's move on to the actual reward and punishment processing. So I talked about those signals, those event-related potentials in the brain, uh, which you can measure with uh, EEG, so electroencephalography. And... As I said, there are four components that relate to different things in this predictive coding. So let's talk about those. So the first one that you will see is called the P200 or the P2 component. And those names refer just to when they happen and how they look like. So as I told you, those uh, EEG signals are kind of like waves and a wave has a positive peak and a 
negative peak. And the P just stands for positive or negative. Why are they positive and why are they negative? It just happens to be the case. Like that's, that, that's just what, how we measure it. If we, uh, you can actually uh, reverse the sensors on the head uh, with EG and then you would, that, that positive peak would change into a negative peak. But typically when you measure it, like we standardly do, you will see a positive peak. Uh, and the two stands for two because it's the second positive peak. So what about the first positive peak? That first positive peak is the one that happens during the sensory information processing. So the stuff that happened before when you saw the, the numbers or the or tasted the taste. Um, so it's called P2 or sometimes P200. Um, and the 200 stands for it, it happens after 200 milliseconds. However, nowadays researchers tend to not use that number anymore that much or that, that higher number anymore that much because although it happens around 200 milliseconds after you get the reward, that can vary quite a bit. So in some participants, it's 150, in others, it's 250. Uh, and also it depends very strongly on the task. Sometimes if a task is really complex and it takes the brain a little bit longer to process this. So typically people refer to P2, the second positive component. So how does that look like? You will just uh, see those four waves. And the first wave you will see uh, when looking at that area is a positive peak, and that's called the P2. And that is related to the processing of rewards and punishments. So actually, that will tell you whether something is positive or negative. Uh, and it also has an element of subjectivity in there. So that, that, that first positive wave will be bigger when you get a reward compared to when you get a punishment. So when you get 50 points, that peak will be bigger than when you get minus 50 points. But there's also a subjective element in there. Um, and it seems to be the case that that um, first positive peak can also be different if you get a subjective reward versus an objective reward. For example, what, what do I mean with that? So let's say it's Christmas and you get a present um, that is worth about $100. Then that's, of course, a reward, right? You, you gain something that you didn't have before and $100 is quite a bit. So that, that will be a reward. That's objectively a reward. You're better off after than before. However, if everybody else in the family gets a present that is worth $500, then you will still feel like you're being punished, right? Because everybody else did get something better than you got. Um, so subjectively, that will not feel as a reward. Um, so whereas objectively, it's a reward. Subjectively, it's probably more a punishment. And that is what you will see in this first positive peak. So this first positive peak, the P2, uh, really reflects on how you interpret uh, that reward, whether it's good or bad. So, so basically that first signal is kind of like, it's whether it's good or bad. Yeah. Wow. So, so if I'm understanding you correctly, you, you're, you're basically saying that when it comes to reward, uh, behaviorally speaking, of course, it's not only, uh, the objectivity of, of how much the reward is, 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 is worth, right. But we also have a subjective, uh, perception of the reward. You know, if, if I get a certain amount of money, but everyone else gets, you know, 10 times that amount of money, uh, I'm going to feel bad, right? It's not going to feel like a reward. And this subjective experience is reflected by this P2 uh, event-related potential that you described. Right. So, uh, so the P2 actually reflects both the objective and the subjective part because um, both of them are important in a sense, right? So even in this example of Christmas, um, if you get $100 or a present worth of $100, that eventually is still a reward, even though it feels unfair and it subjectively feels bad, it's still a reward. And in the survival sense, those will still be a good thing, right? So going back to our ancestors, when you had to survive and you get a reward, even if that reward is crap compared to all the other rewards that you could have gotten, it's still a reward. So it's still promoting survival. So um, so, so they're both important and they're both reflected by this, this first component. Yeah. Wow. All right. So let, let, let's move on and then let's go to the second component. Um, and of course, after there is a positive peak, there has to be a negative peak, right? Uh, and the second negative peak is 
the, the like the best name for it would be the N2 because it's you know also the second negative component, and it sometimes is referred to as the N2. However, when we're specifically talking about getting a reward or getting feedback, then it's called the feedback-related negativity or FRN, um, which is a little bit unfortunate because it would have been easier to just call it N2, but it's called FRN. Uh, I will just refer to it as the second negative peak so that we don't get confused. Um, so, so what's that doing? Because you already have the information whether something's good or bad, right? So, so what's, you know, what, what's happening? Why does there need to be three more components, right? Um, well, actually, when I said, uh, when I talked about the predictive coding, I told you that um, you will compare the actual reward you got to what you expected it to be, right? So if you expected during Christmas a present of $500, because you kind of knew that everybody would get an, uh, um, a present of $500, then that will be a worse than expected outcome, right? So there is a mismatch between what you thought would happen and what actually happened. Coming back to the um, example of the candy bar, if you bought that candy bar, you probably had the expectation that this will be a great tasting candy bar. However, when it then actually tastes like garbage, then there is a big mismatch between what you expected and what the actual outcome was. And that is really important. Why is that important? Because that tells us whether we should repeat this action or not, right? So if, if an outcome is better than expected, that's an, an, an outcome that we probably want to repeat in the future. Whereas if it's worse than expected, um, then you would probably want to avoid it. And if it's just a good action, then nothing needs to change, right? So you, if, if you're doing something and it always consistently gives you a good outcome, then yes, you don't have to change behavior. So you just keep repeating doing that. However, when something is better than expected, you want to do it more. And when something is worse than expected, you want to do it less. So that's kind of like the FRN, this second negative component is really important to change behavior. Yeah, so... so... Basically, what you're saying, so with this example of a, of a candy bar, uh, when we first take a bite of this candy bar, uh, we experience a reward because it maybe it tastes good, right? So we experience of it, and this can be measured with a P2 uh, event-related potential in the brain. But then, of course, you also compare this reward that we have with our expectation. And if there's a mismatch, so if, if maybe we anticipated the candy bar to taste better than it did, then there's a mismatch and that's where the FRN comes in. Exactly, exactly. Um, so what you will see is that this, this second negative component, the FRN, it will be bigger when there is this mismatch. So the bigger the mismatch, the bigger um, the, bigger the, uh, the second negative component will be. And um, so yeah, that, so, so then you would expect, okay, so you, you, you know whether it's a reward or a punishment, you know how you feel about that reward and a punishment, and you know whether it's the same or different from what you expected. So that's it, right? So why are there two more components? Well, actually, that's because uh, I said the FRN is important to change behavior, but it's actually is, there's more to that. More is needed to actually change the behavior. Um, and that's uh, where the last two components come in, the P3, like the third positive component. And actually, you can divide them in two sections. And those two sections happen somewhat at overlapping times. They happen very close to each other time-wise, but you can see them at different parts of the brain. Um, the, 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 first, the, the, the first part of that P3 component, which is called the P3A, um, happens in the frontal part of the brain, whereas the, the second part is more at the back of the brain. But they happen kind of simultaneously. Ah, the P3B is a little bit later, but it's not, you know, it's, it's kind of simultaneous. So, so what do they reflect? And those are, those are real, um, attention uh, potentials. So if you focus your attention on something, then you will see a P3 component. And you will see this also like in non-reward settings, right? So if you, for example, um, listen to a noise and all of a sudden that noise changes, then of course you will be like, oh, wait, that noise changed, right? And that is when you will always see a P3 component. So that, that's really an attention signal. When you have attention, you will see P3 100% all the time. Something you can see in all participants, 
in every research. So it is, again, something that's really, really clear in the brain. Um, and that is really important when we're talking about wanting to change behavior based on rewards and punishments, because you can only change your behavior if you were made aware of that mismatch. For example, if uh, we take a child to uh, a doctor and a child needs to get a, a shot, right? A, a vaccine or something like that. Typically, what children will do is they will cry, right? Because, you know, it's, it's not nice to get a shot. It hurts. It's just, you know, if, 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 if they get it in the arm, then the, the arm will hurt. It will, they will experience pain. And of course, pain is a negative outcome. And, and, and such a negative outcome would, of course, induce a, a negative potential at the N2 level, right? At the second negative peak, there will be some, something. Because, of course, typically we are expecting good outcomes. And then, of course, a negative outcome would always um, induce uh, this negative peak. However, I don't know if you ever tried this, if you, have, if, if you have children in the family or if you have your own children, if you ever tried this. But if you redirect their attention then it's, it, it seems that the child doesn't even notice. So for example, a child gets shot and then a nurse is there with holding a teddy bear and distracting its attention. The child will not even notice that it got the shot. So it won't notice the pain. It won't notice the negative outcome in this, in this uh, sense. And of course, when I'm talking about negative outcome, uh, getting a vaccine or a shot is typically a good outcome. But of course, the child you know, in that moment doesn't you know, doesn't realize that, right? It's just, it's just you know, at, I'm, I'm really talking about that peak, that pain moment. Um, so, but if you distract the attention, so uh, you, you, you put the attention somewhere else, then that pain or that negative outcome isn't even felt. And that's an example of where there is a, a negative outcome, a mismatch between what you expected and what actually happened to, but without attention, and of course, then you can ask yourself, well, if you didn't even notice the punishment, is there actual punishment, right? <laughs> and, and, and the same is true for rewards, right? If, you, if you're getting a better than expected outcome, but you don't notice it because you're not attending to it, then you, 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 know, you, won't, you won't experience it. So this, is this, this attention component is also related to consciousness, right? So to conscious experience of the positive or negative outcome. Uh, I think that's a very cool question. You know, I mean, if if we don't notice the reward, is it or if we don't notice the punishment, is it a punishment? You know, if a if a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it, doesn't make a sound. You know, like yes. Well, that that that's a completely different bombshell <laughs> that I don't want to get into right true, now. But um, uh, but but yeah. So there there are definitely um, things happening in the brain where the the outcomes are processed positive or negative but we don't have a conscious experience of it uh, and this is where consciousness uh, is, is really important and is related to attention and yeah as, as i said if, if something is is positive or negative but you don't experience it is it then actually a reward or a punishment and i would say probably not but more importantly if you don't notice you cannot learn from it right you cannot, if you don't notice that something was uh, worse than expected, you won't change your behavior. For example, um, when you put your hand on a hot stove, you will immediately take your hand away because that's, that's, a pun that's an instant punishment, right? But if you wouldn't be able to feel that that is a punishment, then you probably wouldn't take away your hand. And there, there's actually an interesting, well, interesting, it's, it's sad for the people who have it, but there's a disease called CIPA, C-I-P-A, I believe it's written, um, which is um, a disease where people don't experience pain and they, they hurt themselves all the time because they cannot learn from, from negative outcomes because they don't experience the negative outcomes. Uh, in this case, that, that's more of a sensory uh, disease, so it's not completely related to um, what I'm talking about here. But it does show you if you're not aware of the negative outcomes, you, you cannot learn from them. Right. So, so then this, this uh, P3A is really then important for learning, right? Uh, based uh, on reward. Well, yeah, so that, that, that's, that's, where, that's where those two P3 components come in, right? So the P3A is actually reflecting attention, whereas... This P3B, which is seen at a somewhat different location 
at somewhat the same time, that's really for uh, learning or as we would call it in more technical terms, updating the prediction model. So kind of like you, you update what based on your uh, previous knowledge. So if you have a candy bar that tastes great, you might buy again. If the candy bar was better than expected, you will probably buy a lot of them. And if it was worse than expected, you will update your model to never buy this thing again. And that's kind of like updating the prediction model is kind of what learning is, right? Or at least what learning based on reward and punishment is. Of course, there's different kinds of learning, right? If you learn vocabulary, you learn 10 words. That's, that's not related to reward and punishment. Um, but, but yeah, that's, so reward and punishment learning, that's kind of like updating the prediction model. Mm-hmm. So, so just in summary, if you, if you look at it, um, when, when, when we're talking about getting a reward, there are like four steps in there that are all necessary to, for you to understand what a reward actually is. So for you to, at the point you bite into this candy bar to actually understand what you experienced and whether you want to have that candy bar again, which is kind of what we think of if we colloquially talk about reward, that takes four steps. And we can see those four steps in the brain with EG and we can see them reliably and we can see them in all participants. Yeah, uh, I mean, this is really cool stuff. I'm not gonna lie, I I think this is really cool. but one thing I'm wondering is you kind of alluded to uh, P3A and P3B happening in different parts of the brain. Uh, so I'm wondering just so where does all this stuff happen in the brain and, you know, how can we measure it, you know? Uh, and also you kind of linked or we talked about dopamine in the beginning of this podcast. So how is this all related, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. And that's um, that's I kind of kind of like went to a rant or not a rant, but I, I kind of lost myself in my own story here and I completely forgot about that. But um, passion. Yeah. Man. So, so yeah, well, <laughs> I know. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, anyway. Um, so yeah, yeah. We can, of course, we, we can locate where things happen in the brain. Um, however, not, we cannot do this with this EEG method. This EEG method um, is very good at finding the, different things that happen at different times, but it's not very good at finding where it actually happens. Right. Uh, so th- for that, you need other techniques. And uh, I, I, I will say upfront that I have not that much experience with, with that uh, myself, but of course I, I read about it. And when I wrote down papers, I always had to write down where I expect this to happen. So there's a lot of research that has been done on this and it's typically done with an MRI machine and, I I guess most listeners will be aware of what an MRI machine is. Um, For those who don't, it's that big tube thing you will sometimes see in a hospital where you go lie in and then they they can make a scan of the inside of your body. And of course, when they can make a scan of the inside of your body, they can also make a scan of the inside of your brain. And actually they have a, a specialized function in there, which is called functional magnetic resonance imaging functional MRI or fMRI. And that's when you can actually see the activity in the brain. And that is really good to distinguish where stuff happens. Um, I say good, it's still limited, of course, because it would be better if we could just open up the skull, but we tend to not do this in alive human people. So, (laughs) you know, can't do that. But uh, yeah, so uh, what you basically will see is that there is an entire network of brain areas that are activated. So it's not one spot in the brain. It's not two spots in the brain. It's probably a collection of 20, 30 areas in the brain that are active. um, And that, you know, they do relate to those EEG signals that we talked about before. So one one area that you will see that is active is the prefrontal cortex. The prefrontal cortex is the most frontal part of the brain. So it's actually above your eyes. Um, And it's also... um, a part of the brain that is kind of unique to humans. Um, although other animals have it, it's uh, not as big as it is in our brain. And that is really uh, related to um, cognition and understanding and you know all the things that kind of make humans unique, but also understanding of, of, of rewards and punishments. Um, so we're talking about the prefrontal cortex. So we're talking about the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, the orbitofrontal cortex, anterior cingulate cortex, 
um, I mean, those, those names, you, you don't need to know them at all, but those are just different areas in, in the frontal part of the brain that are all related. And for example, the orbitofrontal cortex, um, that's, it's called orbitofrontal, the orbit is the eyes, right? And frontal is, well, that's still frontal. So it's, <laughs> it's basically the part of the, it's basically the part of the brain that's actually behind the eyes. Okay. And, and that area is, uh, that is really related to subjective experience of reward. So remember when we talked about the P2 component that uh, can distinguish between you getting the $100 presents and everybody around you getting the $500 presents. Um, when you would do this uh, and, and do an MRI scan of that or an fMRI scan of that, you will see that the orbitofrontal cortex will be active. And uh, there are some studies that actually also link that this P2 component to orbitofrontal activity. So, so that, that's kind of what that area does. And the anterior cingulate cortex, which is a different part of the frontal, um, frontal part of the brain, uh, is more related to more the objective kind of, um, is it positive, is it negative? And also, is there a mismatch? So we know that, for example, the uh, FRN component, is this mismatch detector, whether it was whether the reward was as expected or better than expected or worse than expected, this is kind of located in the anterior cingulate cortex. Again, you don't have to memorize the names, but it's kind of cool to know that we can link those EEG components to actual brain scans. Um, uh, even though I should say that those EEG components, they are typically spread out a little bit over multiple areas and as, as i said it's a, it's it's an all a connected thing and it's an entire network but those would be the hotspots of those components and uh, but but yeah that's that's kind of the the, the frontal part of the brain and then there is also a deeper part of the brain more in the middle of the brain and that's where there are some areas that are also related to reward and that's kind of where the initial reward processing starts uh and again i will call some names and yeah, you don't have to memorize me. One, one you mentioned before is the substantia nigra. Mm -hmm. uh, that's that's where dopamine uh, uh, receptors lie. So that's where dopamine. Is. I wouldn't say it's created, but that's that's a hot spot of dopamine. Uh, another one is the ventral tegmental area. That's also a part of the brain where, which is really strongly dominated by dopamine receptors, and um, the nucleus accumbens. Uh, and they also connect to the amygdala. Uh, the amygdala is maybe a little bit more known to people because that's an area that is important for emotion, particularly fear, but also positive emotions. So, of course, when you get a reward, you, that's typically linked to a positive emotion, right? It's not like you get a reward and then start crying because you're so sad. <laughs> so that's, that's kind of related to that as well. Uh, because I mean, imagine that the amygdala wouldn't be in there. So you would get a reward and you were like, okay, cool, I got a reward. Okay, cool. I got a punishment. Like you wouldn't, eh, you know, that would be interesting. But yeah, and so those 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 deeper areas are connected to the frontal part of the areas. And as I said, those those deeper areas, that's where kind of the dopamine is. That's that's kind of where um, dopamine projections are towards the frontal cortex. So uh, the important thing to get from this is that we have those four components that really connect to four different aspects of the predictive coding. And then those, uh, those components, particularly the early components, like the subjective versus objective reward and also the mismatch detection, that's where kind of dopamine is playing an important role. So yeah, I mean, we can talk a little bit more about dopamine. It's not my main topic of interest, but it's, it's definitely cool. And that's, that's the thing that most people have heard about. So, so let's talk a little bit more about that. So, so, so dopamine, yeah, what is dopamine? So first of all, dopamine, People refer to it as a chemical in the brain, and uh, that is that is technically correct. Uh, actually, it is like not even technically; it's fully correct. But um, what it actually is is a neurotransmitter, and a neurotransmitter is uh, neurotransmitters are used for uh, the communication between brain cells. So when one brain cell connects to another, uh, they they send an, a signal, and to actually go from one neuron to another. Uh, that open space in between has to be covered by some chemicals that go from one to the other. And those chemicals are called neurotransmitters. And that's, this was very simplified because there are actual research lines that look for this for 50, 100 years <laughs> only on this specific um, 
apart from going one neuron to another and neurotransmitters. So uh, that was very simplified within like 30 seconds, but yeah, that, that's kind of the gist of it. And dopamine is one of those um, uh, chemical messengers or whatever you want to call them. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Um, and, and what we will see is that different areas in the brain will be dominated by different kind of neurotransmitters. So as I said, those, the, the ones uh, in the middle of the brain, this ventral tegmental area and the substantia nigra, they, that, that's where a lot of dopamine is going on. It's not only dopamine, but it, that's where the hotspot is. And there are other areas of brain where other neurotransmitters are important. Anyway, so um, a lot of study has been done on when dopamine is actually released into the brain. And something that, uh, and, and this is also where we can start talking about addiction uh, because of course, when we're talking about uh, this kind of stuff, addiction is something that can happen. I mean, we talked about it before, right? If that, if that, if that uh, bag of cookies goes open, it has to go away, right? <laughs> so, like that's not going to survive. Right. Yeah. And so, so addiction, and of course that's not, that's not addiction. That's just uh, not being able to control yourself, but of course it's, it's related, right? So it's, 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 it's kind of the, it's like a mini version of addiction. Um, so yeah, so, so let's talk about um, how dopamine looks like in relation to getting rewards and how this can relate to uh, addiction. First of all, we need to talk about primary and secondary re uh, rewards. Ha have you heard of that, Michael, what, what primary and secondary rewards are? Uh, yes, I have. And correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong. Uh, so primary rewards are biological rewards, right? So it refers to rewards that are necessary for our survival, correct? Exactly, yes. Um, in a nutshell, uh, you could say food and sex. Right. It's, it's, it's as simple as that, food and sex. That's our primary things uh, for survival. And when I'm talking about food, I'm talking again about uh, sugar, about fat, and about salt. Because those are the things that back in our, the, the days of our ancestors were most important for survival. You need uh, fat to isolate your, uh, you, you know, yourself to get some fat so that you don't star starve in the cold. You need uh, sugar for energy. And you need salt for other stuff in the body that I don't really know, but you need salt. And that's why we so strongly like those ones, right? That, that, that's why we like sugar so much. That's why we like salt so much. And that's why we like fatty food so much, because they are extremely important for our survival. Well, maybe not in the 21st century and maybe also not in the second part of the 20th century, but in all the centuries before, we needed this kind of stuff to survive because otherwise we would starve. And then, of course, the other one is uh, sex, uh, which is, compared to food, is not something you need on a daily basis, but still it is uh, something that will always give us a reward no matter what we're doing. Well, maybe not always, but, you know, uh, a lot of times. And then there are secondary rewards. Those are rewards that um, are not directly related to our survival, but still eventually can lead to better survival uh, and are just giving us, us pleasure, basically. So, for example, um, listening to some nice music will give us a good feeling. Um, having social interactions, although you could argue that it's maybe even a primary one. Uh, all this kind of stuff, looking at art, enjoying the sunny weather, uh, you name it. Everything that gives you pleasure but it's not directly related to your survival. That's the secondary reward. And then there is one interesting one. Uh, that's money. <laughs> money is kind of, is, is technically a secondary reward because what is money? Money is just a piece of paper or just a number on your bank account, mm -hmm. right? It's not something that promotes your survival, but you can buy stuff that promote your survival, AKA food. Um, and also, Nowadays, money is so intertwined with our lives. It's so important in, in our lives that for a lot of people, just having money is very, very important and will give a very strong response in the brain. So that's kind of like a pseudo primary reward. Um, but yeah, it technically is a secondary reward. 
so why, why am I mentioning this? Why am I mentioning primary versus secondary rewards? The reason for that is, is that the primary rewards are the ones you don't really habituate to. What does habituate mean? Habituate means that uh, you get used to it, basically. Um, or, or that means that the signal becomes lower over time. And primary rewards, you don't habituate very well to them, which means you always want more of that. Coming back to sugar, salt, and, and fatty foods, you always want more of those. Why? Because they're so important for your survival. And as I said, back in our ancestry days, there was almost no such thing as having too much of those because you would always, there would always be scarcity, right? So you, you, you don't get used to them. You always want more. These will always be rewards. Whereas the secondary rewards, um, you habituate to them a lot quicker. For example, if you listen to a nice song on the radio, um, you will enjoy that. But if it's repeated for a second time immediately afterwards, uh, you might enjoy it less. And then if you hear it for 50 times in a row, then you definitely want to hear something different. So secondary rewards are the ones that you habituate to uh, a lot quicker. And those are definitely not, um, I'm saying definitely not, which I probably shouldn't say, but they, they are they're not so linked to addiction at all, right? You, you cannot get to something addicted if you don't want more of it because you habituate to it. That, that just is a contradiction in itself. Right. So the primary rewards, as I said, those are the ones that you always want more of. You want more sex, you want more sugar, you want more salt, you want more fat. And that kind of science sounds like an addiction, right? That's kind of, uh, you know. <laughs> I need my sugar, man. <laughs> yes, exactly. And that's why some people say that sugar is, is addictive. And in this sense, this kind of is true, right? So what does it look like in the brain? Because we're kind of talking about the brain, right? So there are some interesting studies done in the last century uh, in animals where they actually recorded the neurons that respond to dopamine or, or where dopamine is released. And so this can only be done by actually implanting uh, an electrode into the brain. That's why it's done in animals. And of course, we can discuss whether that is ethically okay or not. But last century, nobody better than I on that. So let's just, you know, we have the research, so let's go with it. <laughs> um, so what you will see is that for a lot of dopamine neurons or neurons that, that respond to dopamine, um, they will have a dopamine response when they get a reward. So in, in the case of a monkey, they typically get a juice uh, that they like. And when they get the juice, you will see that those neurons become active. So there's a spike in dopamine-related neurons activity. However, if you keep repeating that reward, and this is more true for uh, secondary rewards, then you will see that the dopamine response is becoming less and less and less. So that's, that's kind of what, what, what the um, habituation is, right? You, the, the, the thing that is rewarding becomes less rewarding, and that's why you don't want more and more of it. Um, so that's why, that's why it's sometimes interesting if some people talk, okay, yeah, I'm going to the gym, and then you get a dopamine release. Well, if you're going for, to the gym for two years in a row, then I'm not sure if that the dopamine release is still very big. You know, it's probably something else that motivates you to go there, the long-term goal, but it's not the dopamine itself. That's, that's why I find it interesting that, that, you, that you hear particularly fitness uh, channels sometimes talk about dopamine and it's probably not even correct, but okay, that's, that's a side story. <laughs> anyway, so, um, however, of course, uh, when you then do not give this reward for quite a while, that dopamine response does return, right? So if you give the monkey uh, juice, then that uh, dopamine response to juice will become less and less and less. But if you then don't give it juice for a week or maybe even a day, then the dopamine response will be as big as before. So this habituation is not lasting. It just, you know, it just goes down and then comes back. Uh, but yeah, for the primary rewards, this habituation is a lot slower and uh, in some cases even non-existent. Uh, and that's what we talked about with uh, the addiction. So is sugar an addiction? Michael, tell me. 
I mean, at first glance, I mean, the answer would be yes, right? Right. However, as it always is in the brain, it's more complex than that. Because what actually is an addiction? What's the definition of an addiction? And that's where we get a problem. Because there is no set in stone definition of what an addiction is. If you define an addiction of a state where you want more and more and more, which is more like a psychological description of what it is, then yes, you could define sugar or salt as an addiction. However, when we actually look at um, addictive drugs and particularly opiates, uh, such as morphine um, or, or painkillers, or, uh, I mean, it's even true for cigarettes, right? There's something else going on, right? Because if you, if you compare those two, so the, the opiates to, uh, let's say, let, let's, pick, let's pick one. Let's pick heroin and compare it to sugar. Because I've seen that in an article before where they said like, yeah, sugar is the new heroin. Okay, whatever. <laughs> um, so, but those, that, that's an unfair comparison because uh, sugar acts on the dopamine system. Heroin does too, but heroin also affect the noradrenaline system directly. So basically heroin directly affects neurons in the uh, noradrenaline system. So I mentioned a difficult word there, noradrenaline. Okay, what is that? Adrenaline, people have heard of, and noradrenaline is a version of that. Well, it's not a version of that, but it's related to that. Let's say it like that. Sometimes it's also called epinephrine. It's the same thing. It's just not a difficult word. It's the same thing. So noradrenaline, just as dopamine, is a neurotransmitter. So there are neurons in the brain that are particularly responsive to getting signals from noradrenaline. And noradrenaline, and that's why I say it's related to adrenaline itself, which people have heard of us, is important for arousal. So how um, aroused you are, how... how um, so it's, it's also related to sleep, calmness, um, blood pressure, um, heart rate, that's all that, uh, all those things are controlled by noradrenaline. And that's why when you, and, and of course the opiates, they affect that system directly, which means if you don't get opiates, let's say heroin, then you will have withdrawal symptoms. And those withdrawal symptoms will be, and you guessed it, a lack of sleep, a lack of rest, uh, an itchy feeling, this, this, this feeling of agitation, um, which is all related to the noradrenaline system. And this is something that doesn't happen with sugar. I'm saying it doesn't happen. That's not true because some people will feel some withdrawal symptoms of sugar. Actually, it's more craving. Craving and withdrawal systems are not the same thing. You can crave something which really means you're missing it. You want it very much. And you might even have a bodily reaction to missing it, like being a little bit agitated or something like that. But it's not the same as withdrawal symptoms. Withdrawal symptoms are basically, uh, is, is a very strong form of craving. Okay, so what's happening in the brain? So I talked about the dopamine system, the noradrenaline system. Heroin directly affects the noradrenaline system. Sugar does not. Sugar only affects the dopamine system. However, why then does uh, a lack of sugar create sometimes this agitated feeling, particularly in people um, who, like, there are, of course, differences between, between people. Like, for example, people who have diabetes tend to like sugar a little bit more, and they also show stronger cravings when they don't get it. Um, when they don't get it really sounds like an addiction now, right? That's not what I meant. <laughs> uh, but, you know, there is some stronger craving going on there. Uh, and I, I don't want to generalize for everybody, but that seems to be the case if you ask most of them. And that's because the dopamine and the noradrenaline system in the brain itself are already connected. So if you get a dopamine-related reward, that will decrease activity in the noradrenaline system. That's why when you eat sugar um, or, or anything else that's rewarding, um, 
you become a, bit, a little bit relaxed, you come a little bit slower. And also if you have a high uh, sugary meal, you will sometimes experience an after dinner dip, which is basically just your dopamine system telling you that you are very happy at this point. And then it just connects to this or disconnected to the noradrenaline system and kind of like, okay, he can relax now. He can, you know, he can chill out, decrease heart rate, um, you know, re relax a little bit. So in the brain itself, dopamine and noradrenaline are, are connected, which means that if you get a dopamine-related reward, this will have an indirect effect on the noradrenaline system itself. So what does that mean? <laughs> okay. Basically, when you, have, when you get heroin or another opiate, this will, affect, this will have a direct effect on dopamine and it will have a direct effect on noradrenaline. When you eat sugar, it will have a direct effect on the dopamine. It will not have a direct effect on the noradrenaline system, but it will have an indirect effect because the dopamine and noradrenaline system are already connected to each other, which means that if you look at if, if you take those two things, it should affect the dopamine and it should affect the noradrenaline system as the two criteria for what an addiction is, then sugar will check kind of one and a half of those boxes. Like the first one, it definitely does. And the second, kind of, because it's an indirect effect, but not really. So it really depends on where you draw the line and where you, where you, where, when, when you say something is an addiction or not. And, and currently there is no consensus on that. And, and I guess the same thing also goes for the, for the symptoms, symptoms that you experience yourself. I mean, as you alluded to earlier, I mean, you can have a really, really strong craving for sugar and that can lead to even some bodily symptoms that are very similar to, uh, to addiction, right? So that kind of class to the addiction as well. Right, and it's particularly when people are uh, agitated. So it, it goes in two directions, right? So when are people craving sugar? Typically, when they had a bad day, right? So when you, when you feel like shit, when, when your noradrenaline system, when you're stressed out, when the noradrenaline system is very active, um, you kind of want to slow that down. And how can you do it? By getting a reward and by activating the dopamine system because that in turn will lower down uh, those... those um, Agi that agitation created by the noradrenaline system right so so yeah that that that's definitely what's happening uh is it an addiction or not i i would still tend to say probably sugar is not an addiction but it is definitely something we should be aware of um how it works and 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 like even if we don't call it an addiction uh we of course still should be watching out with how much we 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 eat of it and, and, you know, we should be responsible with it. Right. But, but yeah, coming back to what you said, yeah, when, when the box of cookies goes open, it has to, to disappear. That's, that's definitely also related to this habituation thing, right? You don't habituate. Mm -hmm. So you, you know, it has to go. Right. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, the, the relationship between, you know, the, the ERP components and reward and, and addiction, you know, I mean, it's all, there's so many pieces of the puzzle that are connected. And uh, yeah, I mean, this is really cool stuff. Yeah. So, so uh, you know, when, when people talking about rewards, uh, just as simple as seeing points on a, on a screen or uh, just as simple as taking that bite of that candy bar, a lot of stuff is going on in the brain and it's actually it's actually quite complex. And so if people, you know, talk about, yeah, you get a reward, then your dopamine system gets active. Yes. Yes, that is true. But uh, if you go in more detail, you can talk about it uh, for more than an hour, I guess. So, uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so, you know, it's, 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 it's complex stuff, but it, it's cool. And, and to be fair, I, I now told you maybe 10% of the story, maybe 5% of the story. There's so much more you could get into. And even yeah. in my own research, I have looked at different aspects of this um, where we didn't talk about uh, individual differences. We didn't talk about um, what happens if you get additional information about a reward. So for example, if you, if you make a prediction of the reward, but can you make this prediction better when you get additional information, for example, if an expert tells you, okay, this is going to lead to a reward, how is that affecting your prediction of whether you get a reward or not? 
So there, there is all kinds of stuff that 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 we didn't touch upon, and we probably will in a future uh, in a future podcast. But yeah, I guess for now, I I I will I will shut up. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean I, I really enjoyed sitting back and listening. You know, I mean some of the things that you mentioned are things that I've I've learned myself in the past in my studies. You know, but it's always nice to have a clear kind of coherence through it, right? And uh, and yeah, I think you explain things very well, you know, and uh, well, thank you. Uh, yeah. So I guess that's it. Uh, so, uh, yeah, to all the listeners, if you're still around, thank you a lot for listening to it. If you have any <laughs> questions, leave them in the comments uh, or you, of course, can contact us directly. Uh, again, as a small reminder, we have our Instagram page, uh, real.psyched. And uh, of course, if you want to have, uh, listen to more content of us, uh, subscribe to the channel like this video yeah smash that like to. button you know like <laughs> smash that like button as they say Thanks, um, as, as they also say like share and subscribe and um, and, uh, and and the notification bell thingy thing absolutely so, ring do, it do all, do all that kind of good stuff and um, yeah I hope you enjoyed it and uh, yeah that's it uh, from my part maybe you can have some uh, last words yeah, I mean, as you said, you know, if you ring that notification button, you know, you're going to get a notification when we drop a new video and that's going to, you know, have a reward in it, right? And you might have exactly. some uh, P3 and P2 and all the all that good stuff. So, uh, uh, yeah, so stay psyched, people, and uh, we'll see you next video. All right. Bye-bye. Peace.